The story is told of a uh, defendant who was on trial for murder, and there was strong, overwhelming evidence of guilt, but there was no corpse. And in the defense's uh, closing statement, the lawyer, knowing that his client probably would be convicted, uh, resorted to a trick. He said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I have a surprise for you. Within one minute, the person presumed dead in this case will walk into this very courtroom through those back doors. He looked toward the back. The juries all turned. They looked, and they were stunned by what he had just announced. A minute went by, two minutes went by, three minutes went by, and nobody came through the door. Finally, he said, actually, I just made that previous statement up, but uh, you all looked on with anticipation. Therefore, I argue that there is reasonable doubt in this case, and you must find my client innocent. So the jury went back, and they deliberated, and they came out within probably 20 minutes. The jury foreman stood up and said, ladies and gentlemen, uh, of the jury, they were asked by the judge, have you a verdict? And they said, yes, we do, your honor. What say ye? He said, guilty. Guilty. First degree murder, guilty. The lawyer afterwards went back to the jury room and asked the jurors, why? He said, I can't understand that every one of you, I looked at you and every one of you looked through that back door. Every one of you, without exception, looked. And the foreman said, yeah, we did. We all looked. But your client never did. <laughs> and I thought, wow, you know, isn't that interesting? That story reminds me of that old adage, you know, that you can uh, fool some of the people all of the time. I like the delayed laughs. Those are the best. It's like, oh, now I get it. That was good. <laughs> and some of you, I know you do it at lunchtime. And others, at sometimes during the course of the day, you know. But that's all right. The point is still made. You know, it's that old adage that says you can fool some of the people all of the time and all the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. You know, as we've been going through the book of Romans, I think we can add this final thought, and that is this. And you can't fool God at any time. You know, if you really think about it, there are many of us who we deceive ourselves into believing that we're innocent, or we look at people around us and we assume that they are innocent as well. But the bottom line is this, we can never fool God. And God very clearly declares throughout this study in the book of Romans, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Because what God wants to make sure that each of us clearly understand is that we're not fooling him whatsoever. And in fact, in Romans chapter 5, we learn that all of us need either contacts or new glasses or to focus, there we go, that all of us, we learn, are dead in Adam. All right, this could be a problem. Huh? This thing. Oh, don't worry, I'm in the mechanical contracting business. <laughs> How frightening is that? But don't worry, I'll never... <laughs> but that all of us are... Uh, Gene, I can even move this back closer to me again. I'm figuring this out. All right, all of us are uh, dead in Adam. And in Romans chapter 5, that's what he wants us to understand, that we're dead in Adam, but we're alive in Christ. In Romans chapter 5, verses uh, 12 through 21, we read these words. It says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there is no law. 
Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace, <coughs> excuse me, of the gift of righteousness, will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And the law came, and that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so, grace might reign through the righteousness to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I'm going to admit, when I first read this passage and started to study and was putting this together, I was reminded immediately of when I first became a Christian. And I asked the person that I was with at that time, I said, now what should I do? I said, well, I suggest you, you, you know, you read the Gospel of John. So I went, oh, great, I'm going to read the Gospel of John. So I got home that night and I started to read it. And this is what I read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In Him all things came into being. Apart from Him nothing came into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness didn't comprehend it. There was a man who was sent from God whose name was John. He came to bear witness of the light. He wasn't the light. And I'm reading this going, what? Now, I don't know. There are times that I read in the Bible, I go, what? Ah, what is this all about? I mean, it's just not one of those casual cursory glances that you give and you walk away with this warm, fuzzy feeling that came from God that, wow, isn't this great stuff? I mean, there are times when we come across Bible study that we have to study the Bible. There are times we've got to just roll up your sleeves and dig in. You're going to have to look up words. You're going to have to find out what the root meaning was. You're going to have to find a word study. You're going to have to find common passages because God says that his word off is like a hidden treasure. It's like a buried treasure. And when you go about and you're searching for it and you're digging and you find that, it's like when you finally find the meaning and the truth of the passage, you just want to scream, ah, oh, this is good stuff. And so some of you just read that with me. We're going, what is this all about? Let me just tell you something. If you hang in there with me for a little bit, you're going to find out that this is good stuff. I can't remember the last time I said, man, somebody said, what are you guys studying? We're studying the book of Romans. And I always say, man, it's good stuff. And one guy looked at me and said, you know, anytime I ask you whatever you're studying, you say, you always say it's good stuff. I said, because well, I haven't found anything I've studied yet that's not good stuff. This is good stuff. Every study we ever do is good stuff. I mean, it's life-changing stuff. It's stuff that when, when you really understand it and it affects the way you see the world around you and the way you live your life, it doesn't get any better than that. And so as we look at this, I want you to kind of hang in there with me because I realize, as you do, when you read through a passage like this, you go, huh? What is, what is this all about? But when you find out what it's about, it'll change your life if we live out what we say we believe. For example, in Romans chapter 5, Paul comes to this passage that we just read, and it's almost like a parenthesis. Because if you recall in our study up to date, from Romans 1, 18 through verse, chapter 3, verse 25, 
what God has done through the writing of Paul to this letter to the Romans, he has clearly identified for us that every person is guilty before God. That all of us have sinned and have gone astray, that each one of us have gone our own way. There are none of us that are righteous, no, not one. And on and on he goes to make sure, and declaratively so, that we understand how God views us as individual people. And so every one of us individually has turned from God and turned from the truth. We live in a culture today when the Bible is mentioned, people just blow it off and say, well, you know what, that, that isn't truth. It might be truth to you, but it's not truth to me. And they turn and they walk away from it and they pursue other truths that they're trying to find. God says throughout generations, man has turned from the declared word of God, the very written word, the very words of God in written form, and has said, we turn our back on that truth. What he wanted each of us to identify with is that, you know what, I had turned my back on that truth at a point in my life, and each one of us have done the same thing. So we're all guilty before God. And so it's almost like a parenthesis that he comes to this point in this passage because he's going to help us to understand how this all started. And he says in verse 12 that therefore just as through one man sin entered into the world, he is going to declare for us how this all started and where it all began. He has never up to this point, think about it, he has never up to this point ever mentioned the names of Adam and Eve. Never once has he mentioned their names. He has helped us to understand that we're all guilty, that we're all lost before God, that we all need to be saved from the guilt and the condemnation that goes with it, that through, through Jesus Christ, for those who believe, we can be declared just before God, that we can be saved from eternal damnation or condemnation from God. But he has never, ever yet said anything about the persons of Adam and Eve. And I think there's a good reason for it. And I think if you stop and think about it, he is now at this point in this study speaking to those of us who have put our faith and trust, recognized our guilt, and responded with faith to the finished work of Christ on the cross on our behalf as individuals. He is talking to us as Christians now, and now he starts to share with us about Adam and Eve. I think it's fascinating, and I think there's an order or a sequence that takes place here that we should also consider as we're sharing with people around us. Now, stop and think about this. Why has he never mentioned Adam and Eve? Because he wants every person to identify with the fact that they are guilty regardless of what anybody else has done in the world around them. Have you ever noticed how our first reaction is when we're accused of being guilty of something, our first defense mechanism is what? To point to someone else. If you've ever had to discipline your children, how many times the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, but he or she, not me, nor I. And you go, wait a minute, what, what, I'm not talking about them right now, I'm talking about you. What did you do? Not why you did it and all the external circumstances surrounding it and all the reasons you're going to give me, I'm just saying, what did you just do? Ba -ba 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 -ba. I didn't do it. Well, who did it? Well, but she made me do it. He made me do it. You know, there, there's that, that common defense mechanism that takes place. See, he wants every one of us to realize that I'm guilty before God, regardless of what anybody else in this room or any other room or any place on the planet has done. I know that I'm guilty and I am in trouble before God and I need to respond with faith to what he says I need to do and believe his word. I need to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. And the Bible says at the moment in time that I do that, that I'm declared just before God. Never mentions Adam and Eve. And I'm going to help you by, by sharing something with you that I believe is the reason why he never mentions Adam and Eve. 
because it really isn't important at that point to the individual. Have you ever gotten a discussion with someone? They want to talk about Adam and Eve. They want to talk about whether the Bible is inspired. They want to talk about this, that, or the other thing. They want to talk about everything but the fact that they're guilty before God. See, I got a feeling if we start to talk about all those things, we'll never get around to the central fact, and that is this, that you individually are guilty before God. And that's the only thing that's going to make any difference. You know, if you stop and think about it and strip everything else away, in my position, I, I have an opportunity on many occasions to talk to people who are facing death. And I want to tell you insight here that will help you and change your life today if you recognize it as, as truth as what I'm about to say. Solomon said that the, house, that the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the mind of the fool is in the house of pleasure. And what he was saying was is that the person whose mind is on eternal things is wiser than the person whose mind is on temporal things, living for the moment, pleasing themselves today, enjoying the good life, all the things that we're promoted to do in our culture. Saying the really wise person is thinking, you know what, I don't care if I'm 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, at some point in my life I'm going to die, and what's that all about? And every funeral that you go to, every memorial service you go to, is a reminder of God that you are going to die just as I am going to die, and we need to get right with God. We hear people all the time say, you know, what would you tell somebody who's got three months to live or six months to live? And here's the kind of advice they give them. You know what, if I were you, I'd get your affairs in order. Or they come up with the statement, if I were you, I would make peace with your maker. That's great counsel. Because what you'll find when you're that person who hears that news, nothing else in life will matter to you anymore. It really won't. You want to leave a legacy for if you're a man, for your wife, for your children, uh, for your family. You want to take care of all of those things. But the foremost thing on your mind is, hey, when I go, where am I going? See, and so when we get off on all these tangents, what happens is we, we fail to address the pertinent question for every human being to deal with, and that is this. Hey, you know what? What is my relationship like with God? If I'm guilty as charged, and I am condemned as charged, and I am walking the green mile as God says I am, then if he says that Jesus took my place, if I'll believe that, and he's going to stop me on that walk, and he'll continue to walk for me, then I say, hallelujah, praise God, what great mercy and love that someone would take my place on the cross, in this case, for me, and I believe what God says, the specific promise of God, that I'm guilty before God, I'm condemned before God, I'm on my way to hell, but he sent Jesus Christ because he loves me and he died on the cross for me, and do I believe that, and when did I come to believe that? You see, all the rest is just a smokescreen to, to, to not have to deal with the genuine issues. Now, if somebody wants to know about Adam and Eve, and somebody wants to know about creation, and somebody wants to know, we have to be ready to give a defense for the hope that's within us, and we need to be ready to address those issues. But we should always try to get the pertinent issue back to the fact that, you know what, let's, let's just forget all that for a second, and let's just talk about you. Because I hear people, well, what about the people in Africa? What about the people in Canada? What about the people here or there? My answer is always, wow, you're so concerned about everybody. You know what? I, I, I'm amazed at that. Because I'm selfish, and the only person I ever really cared about was me. I'm just amazed that you're so concerned about everybody else in the world that you don't care what's going to happen to you. You're, that's amazing. It's like, well, wait a minute. Now, I didn't say that. Oh, good. What are you saying? Well, let's talk about it. See? And so that's really what we're looking at in this passage. So as we look at this, look at the, um, verse 12 again. 
Because Paul does explain how sin entered the world, and he insists very strenuously that Adam was a very real historical person. Notice what he says. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Do you notice what he says? What he's talking about is a doctrine that is commonly referred to as original sin. And that is this. When did all this start? If I'm guilty and you're guilty before God, when did it all start? What did I do and when did I do it that God then said I was guilty? See, as, you know, just in the normal course of events throughout our life, you know, we could go throughout our life and never be convicted or never be accused of doing anything that's wrong. And so we have a problem in understanding how it is that God can convict us and call us guilty if I've never done anything that was wrong. If I'm driving and I'm obeying the speed limit and I never get pulled over to get a ticket, it's hard for me to comprehend what I did that was wrong. But I don't know about you, and my attitude is this. I could get a ticket any day. So the day that I finally get one is just going to kind of just be justice for all the days I got away with it. So, you know, next time you get pulled over, have a better attitude. So, you know what I'm saying? It's just like, oh, he caught me today. You missed me the last six years. Wouldn't that be great? And every policeman I know would be like, wow, this is refreshing. All right, you might not. Just keep that in mind, though, because I'll tell you what. When it happens, you'll be looking for something that would, will get you through it. Okay, but it's a concept of original sin. And so I want you to think along with me for a second, and, th and that is this. Have you ever made the statement or heard someone say this? You know, I believe that people are basically good. Anybody? Ever hear it? Ever make it? I, you know, I believe, pe I, yeah, I believe people are basically good. Now, the question for you is this. Have you ever met anyone that's perfect? We'll never say, I believe people are perfect, because we know no one's perfect. Well, we say things like, or hear things being said, like, I believe people are basically good. So if people are basically good, the question then is that, why is it then, if people are basically good, why is it that we sin or do what's wrong before God? Have you ever heard the argument, and I think I've used this story before, and I love it, it's my favorite story when I wrestle with this, but it has to do with the little boy who got a bad report card. And his dad was just going off on him, man. Just, you know, what's his problem and why isn't he studying and what's going on and all this kind of stuff. You know, and there's this big debate in our culture whether people, you know, they make bad decisions because it's their environment that causes them to make the bad decisions or maybe it's something inherent, you know, maybe it's heredity, whatever it is. Is it an environment or is it the her heredity? And so at the end of getting chewed out by his dad, you know, what's your problem? The little boy stopped and looked at his dad and said, Dad, what do you think it is? Do you think it's my environment or heredity? <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you tell me, what do you think it is? You know, we hear that argument all the time. We hear people argue that, you know, it's the environment. It's the environment that a person lives in that causes them to be the way that they are. Everyone's heard that, right? Okay, if people are basically good, I want you to just think along with me for a second. If people are basically good, would there not be somewhere in this world where people start out good and continue to be good. Is that not possible? See, if we, if we really believe that people are basically good, that there are people and everyone is born good and that somewhere along the line turns, <clears throat> turns bad, then there should be places, isolated places in the world, where people are still good and the environment allows them to continue to be good. Here's the problem. I've never found that place. 
we have had the opportunity to travel pretty much we were in the United States, uh, Europe, uh, uh, you know, other countries. We've gone to places as, as beautiful as the Swiss Alps, and we've gone to places that are pristine, beautiful islands around the world. And you know what? Every place we've ever gone, guess what we found? Crime. If you go to Oahu, you better make sure you lock everything in your trunk. The first thing they tell you at the airport is don't let anything out in sight where someone can see what you got because they're going to want it. It's like, well, what's just so beautiful here? It is, but you know what? The bottom line is this. I've never been anywhere where, the, where everything's perfect. I've never been anywhere where the weather was perfect, where even in beautiful places in the Caribbean that we were at recently, it was still muggy, and it was humid, and there were bugs, and it was disgusting, but I'd go back in a second. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but the point is, is that, you know, it doesn't matter where you go. There's nothing anywhere that's perfect. And the reason for it is, is what we're talking about right now. That people aren't basically good, and that the environment that we live in is under a curse. And we need to recognize and understand where that comes from. Now, the fruit is corrupt, so we've got to go back to the tree. This is what Jesus said. He indicated that the good tree doesn't produce corrupt fruit. And what the Bible teaches is, is that Adam and Eve fell in sin... And subsequently, every human being has been born with a sinful and corrupt nature. That's what the Bible teaches. If the Bible didn't teach that, we could still logically deduce that by the fact that there's nowhere in the world where, where, where it's perfect. We've never met a perfect person. We've never been to a perfect place. There isn't anywhere in the world, if people were born basically good, there should be isolated pockets of places that are inherently good. And that's not true. But we don't have to guess about the origin of where this all took place because the Bible specifically declares it for us to the point where we cannot miss it. The Bible clearly declares that there was a point of original sin and it's not necessarily just talking about that first act that God said was wrong, though there is an act that we'll look at, but it's talking about the result of that act and the result of the act is because of that one act, sin entered into the world and through sin came death because of that one act, all of us are born in that condition. And that's what we need to look at and understand. So notice the clarity of this. Look at verse 12 again. He just says, Therefore, as through one man, sin entered into the world. Sin entered into the world. Now what we're looking at is, in Genesis 1, chapter 1 through chapter 3, we're looking at real history. This is historical truth. And in, and in fact, in Romans 16, look at the, ahead with me, at Romans 16, verse 20, notice what Paul says, and it's actually a quote of what God had said in Genesis 3, but in Romans 16, um, here, verse 20, notice what he says. He says, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Genesis 3, 15, if you remember the curse that God put upon Satan, he said that one day the Savior, Messiah, would come into the world and he would, he would be wounded on his heel, but he would crush the head of the one who was the tempter. And what Paul is quoting is an actual event that took place in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He looks in first, in fact, as Paul in 1 Corinthians speaks of the coming of the resurrection of believers, he assumes the historicity, historicity of Adam when he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, even so Christ shall be made alive. As in Adam all men die, even so in Christ all men will be made alive. 
Now turn with me to First uh, Timothy, back a couple of books from the book of Romans, and, and look at what he has to say to Timothy about uh, Adam and Eve. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. It says, for it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. That God has a natural order of creation. Adam was first created, then Eve. And he was talking about the order of authority, and, and he talked about you know, the man being head of the wife, uh, the wife and, and man being the head of the children. There's a creative order that God has. He says, Adam was created first, then came Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, speaking of Eve, being quite deceived, fell into the transgression. Now, some of you say, well, you know what? Well, what does that mean? It means this, that Eve was deceived into disobeying God, and we'll talk about that event in a moment, but Adam knew exactly what he was doing when he did it, and there was open rebellion and defiance against God, and what he did was, instead of keeping God first in his life, he then put his wife in a position where she was the authority, and she said, do this, and he said, well, let's see, my wife says to do it, and God says not to do it. Am I going to love God first and put him first, or am I going to put my wife above what God clearly said? And he chose deliberately, defiantly, to put what she said to do above that of God. And so because of that, man was held responsible because he openly defied God, and that's what we're going to be looking at throughout this passage. Now, Jesus also, in Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5, he quotes from the Genesis passage when he says that, you know, that, you know man was created, you know, uh, for this cause, speaking of marriage, that for this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He was addressing the question of divorce, and they were saying, well, Moses allowed divorce, and Jesus, in answering that question, went back and quoted, from the very beginning, it was not this way, that man was called to leave his father and his mother and to cleave to his wife and the two would become one flesh. The point is this, is that Paul quotes very specifically from what we see in the Genesis account that Jesus himself quotes from Genesis and what he's saying in, in very clear terms is that, you know what, this is real. This is true. This is history. Jesus quoted, for example, Jonah when he was referring to his own resurrection from the dead. He says, just as in the days, just as in Jonah, and he also quoted about the days of Noah, which I was thinking about, but he was also quoting about Jonah. He says, just as Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days, but three days later he'll rise. He wasn't using it as an allegory. He wasn't using it as a metaphor. It was true history, and he was quoting a true historical event that took place and said, Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days. Whether you understand it, comprehend it or not, it doesn't matter. God's Word clearly teaches that. And then Jesus himself will be put into the grave and three days later, he too will rise. And even if you don't understand it or comprehend it or how did he do it or what was going on, it doesn't matter. It clearly is taught that Jesus rose from the dead. And so now as we look at this, I would think the reason that we don't believe that Adam and Eve are real people is because the greatest lie that has been widely accepted throughout the world occurred in the 20th century, not that it was an original idea or thought, but it gained worldwide acceptance and that is this, the theory of evolution being taught as a scientific fact. It is one of the greatest lies that have been perpetrated upon humanity. And the reason I say that is this, it flies directly in the face of what the Bible clearly teaches, that man was created in the image and likeness of God. In his image we were created. We didn't evolve from something. We didn't come out of some ooze and some slime and become what we are today. We are created and we have the stamp of God himself on our very souls and that we are created in his image, in his likeness. You know, this, 
Genesis account flies, and it should lay to rest or put in the dust the idea that you can be a Christian, that you can believe in the Bible, and still believe in evolution. That's nonsense. It's not possible. It's in direct opposition to everything the Bible teaches. And I get so disgusted and disturbed by so-called Christians who go around trying in some way or another to make, the, uh, to make uh, evolution and its theory fit with the Bible. And we see all kind of nonsense. All you got to do is pick up the paper and read sometimes in the religious section of the newspaper. Theistic evolution. Why have we come up with that? Because we think that science knows more than God? We don't trust the very word of God? We don't believe what God has to say? So the moment that scientist comes up with something they discovered, we immediately set aside the Bible and we jump on that bandwagon until we find out that the front page news of one day is a 47th page retraction this big another day. You either believe the word of God or we don't. And if we believe the word of God, I don't really care what science comes up with because eventually God, as always, will be proven to be right. But the bottom line is this, is that, you know what? We were created in the image and the likeness of God. We were created not only to have fellowship with God, to enjoy his company, but more importantly, to reflect his glory throughout his creation. That was our purpose in being created by God. I love a bumper sticker that I saw recently. You might enjoy this as well. It says, my ancestors were human. Sorry about yours. <laughs> I love that. You know, think about it. It's amazing to me. This is what the Bible teaches. And this is what we need to understand and believe. Because God's word is trustworthy, it's reliable, it's proven to withstand the test of time. And all the latest scientific discoveries rarely, if ever, do. And I'm still convinced to this day, one day we're going to find out dinosaurs didn't even look like anything that you'll see in a museum. But that's just another thing. Um, here's what the Bible teaches, and we need to understand and recognize this. Adam, by nature, when he was created, was sinless. He was holy, but his nature underwent a change when he sinned. His nature became corrupted, the Bible says in Ephesians 4.22, and his understanding was darkened, and he became alienated from the life of God, Ephesians 4.18. And his life became at enmity against God, Romans 8.7. The scripture plainly teaches that Adam transmitted this fallen sinful nature to all of his descendants collectively. And this fact explains why sin is universal. This fact explains why no matter where you go into the world, you will find sin, corruption, decay, and, and crime. This fact alone explains why the world is in the condition that it's in. We need to recognize and understand that we are all born with this nature, which has been called the Adamic nature, original sin, inborn sin. The Bible calls it the old man, lay aside the old man and put on the new man. Whatever it is, all of those things are, 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 are a part of this nature that we're given. That's why when you look at a child, you don't have to teach a child to be selfish and to say no. You know, it's amazing to me how many mothers go to their children, where did you learn that? Well, here's where they learned it. Psalm 51.5, David writes, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Doesn't that just bless your mom? But the bottom line is it's stamped on the very soul of every human being. It's stamped. And you go, well, where did this stamp come from? We were born. In fact, look at Ephesians chapter 2. 
God eats peaches and cream. Ephesians 2. God, Galatians, Ephesians, peaches, Philippians, cream, Colossians. Notice what, notice what Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. He says, And you were dead, speaking of Christians who were no longer dead, but now were alive because they recognized they were guilty before God, responded with faith to the finished work of Christ. He says, You were dead at a point in time in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The disobedience, in fact, is, is, is the way that it reads. And it says, in the sons of the disobedience. What is the disobedience? The act of disobedience that Adam, when he was told by God what he couldn't do, did what he wasn't supposed to do. And that act of disobedience is what brought a curse upon all of humanity. And he goes on and he says, Among those we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. By our very nature, we are sinners before God. Here's the fascinating thing. Adam chose to sin and became a sinner. Because Adam sinned, we are now sinners. We don't have that same choice that he had. He chose to deliberately disobey God, became a sinner, and passed down that sin nature to the rest of us. Now, the reason that I throw this out and to make it as clear as possible is because there is nothing more redundant than what's taking place in society today, and that are scientists who are trying to isolate certain genes so we can find out why people choose to do the things that they do. For example, we read about the alcohol gene or chromosome or whatever so we can figure out why people choose to drink and become alcoholics. We also have a big argument and debate about homosexuality. If it's chosen or if it's something that is genetic or hereditary or there's a gene or chromosome that we can isolate so we can write off this activity to where this person's not responsible for the decisions or the choices that they make. Listen to me very carefully. There is a gene that's passed along to every one of us. It's called the sin gene. And the sin gene will isolate itself or reveal itself in different ways through different people, but it will become revealed one way or the other. So if you choose to drink and become an alcoholic, regardless of all the alcoholism that's in your family, the bottom line is it's a result of our sinful, fallen nature. If you choose to be a homosexual, if you choose to be an adulterer, if you choose to be a fornicator, and as we call in our society today, a player who just goes around having sex with whomever he wishes or she wishes and whenever she wants, if you choose to do that, if you if you choose to be a cheat, if you choose to be whatever, if you have a, a, you know, tendencies toward anger, if you choose any of these, and all these people, are, they're going to counseling to try to figure out what's wrong with them. Here's what's wrong. You're a sinner. You're guilty before God, and so am I. Now, how it manifests itself is different among each one of us. But what we need to recognize and understand, it has to do with our nature, which is a sin nature, which is a direct result of what? The fall of Adam through sin, through Adam's sin entered into the world. It's important that we recognize what's being discussed here because it changes how we look at everything in life. Every one of us are responsible before God for what we choose to do, but more importantly, we need to recognize that, you know what, we're all lost to begin with. There's nobody who's more lost than somebody else. It's just amazing to me how many people are lost and they look at somebody else and they say, wow, that homosexual is really lost. 
That alcoholic really lost. That drug addict really lost. That cheater, that thief, that person that's prone to anger really lost. That person, is, their, their, their mouth is just washed it out with soap. You know, they're just really lost. Let me tell you, we're all lost. We just demonstrate it in different ways. And it's going to change how we look at people around us when we understand God's truth. We're all lost. And what it is, it's a, it's a term called imputed. Imputed sin of Adam. And, and the reason I want to share this with you is because it'll change the way you look at people around you. The imputed sin of Adam. See, here's the problem. We're all lost, yet what God is talking about in Romans 5 isn't sin nature. It's bigger than that. Forty-one times this word is used in two different Greek words. Only two times it's used in the second setting, which is the second word, and that is this, that it's used in this passage in Romans 5, and it's used in Philemon, verse 18, that says, put that on my account. Put that on my account. Now, what that means is imputed. There are three things, imputations, that are found in the Bible. Number one, uh, there's the imputation of Adam's sin to all of mankind. That's what we're talking about right now. And I'm going to illustrate in a very simple way so we understand it. Second thing is there's an imputation of man's sin to Christ on the cross. And the third thing is there's an imputation of God's righteousness to every person who believes in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. And we saw that when we saw, and it was reckoned unto Abraham righteousness the day that he believed God's promise. Everyone follow that so far? So there's two different types of, 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 there's real and there's judicial imputation. Give you an example of real. If you go out and you commit a crime, that crime is put on, quote, your account. That's a real imputation. You did it. You got it? You're guilty, you did it. Judicial imputation is what we've already talked about. In Abraham, Abraham believed God, and God declared him just. That's judicial. God chose to declare Abraham just because he believed the promise of God. That's judicial. You follow me so far? Okay? There's also a judicial imputation in a simple term to put on someone else's account. When I was a kid, and I would go to my grandmother's house, there was this little country store that I would go to, and I would buy things. And the coolest thing about it was I'd buy stuff and I didn't have any money. It was a great deal. And, uh, and, and, and then I was never tempted to steal from that store ever again when I found out that I could do this. I could go in there and I could pick some stuff up and I could put it on the counter and they would say, oh, do you want me to put that on Mary's account? Sure. <laughs> it was so cool. And then sometimes, you know, she, and, if, and I didn't know anything about billing cutoffs then, but... Uh, <laughs> But, but I knew that I could buy all kind of stuff, and at the end of the month, my grandmother would get the bill. And it wasn't until then, and hopefully I was home, <laughs> not at her house, when she got the bill and found out what I had been imputing on her account. That's all it is, a big word to me, put on someone else's account. And so I would put that on her account, and then she would pay for it. See, what God's saying is that, Chuck, I put your sins on Jesus' account, and he paid for you if you believe him. Oh, interesting, isn't it? So there's real and there's judicial. Now, let me give you an example here because here's what happens. And I know it because I struggle with it myself and that is this. Is this judicial or real when we're talking about imputing Adam's sin upon me as an individual? We would look at it and it appear that it should be judicial, that somebody else decided to put that on our account. But the problem is it's not judicial, it's real. But here's what I, here's what, when I'm reading this, I'm thinking, but God, I wasn't there. I didn't do it. Adam did it. 
And you know what's funny is that even as I was arguing with God about the fact I wasn't there and that he did it, God immediately reminded me, what did Adam do when I caught him after he sinned? The first thing that he did was what? Blame the woman. Hey, and we've been doing it ever since. But it didn't work then, and it doesn't work now. But that's what he did. And in fact, in an indirect way, he blamed God. This is what he said. The woman you gave. Now let's remember, I was sound asleep. Kicking back. I woke up, had a little sore on my side. And there she was standing there. And she didn't even have any clothes on. But I didn't even know that then, but I do now. And the problem is, and that's why I said, you know, that's why we call woe man. Woe man. Woman. Whoa, man. All right. So anyway. <laughs> but anyway, go back. So, so he chose to disobey God, and then he blamed God. It's either her fault or God, it's your fault, and I go into that territory a little more with fear and trepidation. Don't hesitate to blame her, but if that's not going to work, I'm going to, I'll go back to you. And God didn't buy any of that. No, it's your fault because you chose to do what you did. Now, the fact that I would wrestle with God and argue with God that it wasn't my fault that Adam chose to sin, so how can he hold Adam's sin against me is an indication that, you know what, it's already been stamped on my very soul that I am finding a way to be defensive, and the fact I'm being defensive is because it's stamped on my soul, and that's sin nature, not only sin nature, but it's imputed as sin to me what Adam had done. Let me explain it in very simple terms. Many years ago, my wife, Linda, and I, with our daughter, who was six months old at the time, moved to California from Pennsylvania. After we moved here, subsequent to that move, we later had two more children. Ryan and Krista were born in California. When we moved from Pennsylvania to California, they moved with us, though they did not exist in any, anywhere, any place, but in God's mind. They moved with us. Now, I know kids always say, but that's not fair. Why, 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 did, why did, was I born here? Why was I born there? Why am I only five feet tall? Why am I six five? And, uh, nah, nah, nah. You know, it's not fair. Well, that's not fair, but it's life. You know, take a look at us. We're five foot nothing. The chance of you becoming six foot seven aren't that great. And if we would have known that was your request, we would have abstained from having sex. You know what I'm saying? That's the way we think, though. It's crazy. But the point, the point is, is that, you know what? They were with us when we made the move, even though they didn't materialize till later. Now you say, well, that's not fair. But you know what? That's just life. I'll give you another illustration. If you've ever played athletics, you know there are times where if one person messes up, the whole team suffers. Every team I've ever been on, it's like, hey, one person's dogging it, everyone's running. What do you mean everyone's running? I was running hard. Doesn't matter. Your teammate wasn't running, you're all going to run. Say, that's not fair. Hey, guess what? You're still running. Well, yeah, it's true. Give you another illustration. Our high school, where our kids went to high school and where one still does, um, played in this baseball tournament. And they played against a team who had an ineligible player. The team that they played beat them 7-1. to one. But it was discovered they had an ineligible player, so that team had to forfeit the game. 
They had one ineligible player, but guess what? The whole team couldn't play because of it. And we shake our heads and we go, well, that's not fair, blah, 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 blah. But you know what? That's life. So here's the deal. Write this down. God has chosen to, what the Bible calls, impute upon every human soul Adam's sin. It was though we were with Adam when he chose to rebel against God, and God knows us, and he knows even if it was us, if it would have been you know, Chuck and Linda that were there, we would have made the same choice. So some of you think, you know what, I would have did better than Adam. It would just been a matter of time before you made the same decision. And we don't even know how long it took Adam to disobey God, but we know he chose ultimately to do so. At that time, God stamped upon every human soul the sin of Adam. We are all born with sin nature. And you can argue that all you want, but listen to the evidence that is compelling for God's point of view. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the, law, until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Listen carefully to the evidence. The reason that all people die is because all people are sinners in the eyes of God. Death, if you remember what the, the command was, of every tree in the garden you can eat, but of the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil, the day that you eat from that tree, you're going to die. There's three deaths mentioned in Scripture. There is, first of all, physical death. Physical death is the separation of soul and spirit from the body. When a person dies physically, they leave their body behind and their soul and their spirit go on. There is spiritual death which is separation also, and that's separation from, the, from the, the express purpose of our creation, which was to have fellowship with God. We are separated from the purpose that God has created us, which is to reflect his glory in the world, and we are separated from him. There is physical death, there is spiritual death, which is exactly what that is. Spiritual death or separation from God, all of humanity. There is also eternal death, and that is separation for eternity from the very presence of God in a place the Bible calls hell. The unbeliever experiences all three. The believer, we are spared the third. And the reason I say that is because the argument is very clear. Why did Adam die? Because Adam sinned. Why did Adam's children die? Because it was imputed upon them the sin of their father. They also died. Read Genesis 5. It is a genealogy of the family of Adam. And at every one of them it says, And he died. 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 God is emphasizing that the result or the consequence, the wages of sin is death. The reason that you and I die is because we're sinners. And we're sinners because it was imputed upon us by the sin of Adam. We are all born into the world lost before God. Why is that so important to understand? Because people are not basically good. If we believe the lie that people are basically good, we will not see them as God sees them, lost and on their way to hell and eternally separated from God. Unless Jesus Christ intervenes on their behalf, they will be lost for eternity. It changes the way that we see the world around us. Do you really see people around you as people walking the green mile? 
if you believe they're basically good, then you think somehow they got a shot. They don't have a chance. There's only one way to the Father, Jesus said, and it's through him. There is no other way to get into heaven but through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved than Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life. Through who? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's important that we recognize and understand that all are born lost. No one's basically good. Regardless of your place of birth, whether you're born in Brea or Borneo, whether you're born in Santa Ana or Santa Domingo, no matter where it is that you're born, you're born lost. That's why Jesus said the Great Commission was to go into all the world proclaiming the good news that God loved people and sent Jesus to die in their behalf. That's why you have missions. That's why you have a missions budget. That's why we have people going all over the place. That's why you go to your neighbor and to your relatives and your friends and your coworkers, and I do the same or your teammates or your classmates. That's why we have a responsibility to go into the world and as we go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the world is lost and going to hell. And the reason that we don't believe that is because we have bought into the greatest lie of the 20th century that somehow or another the theory of evolution is scientific fact. We didn't crawl out of some ooze. We were made in the image and likeness of God. We are created by God himself for the purpose of having fellowship with him and reflecting his glory in the world in which we live. We have been restored to that original purpose, we who have believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. That's why Jesus said we're to be a light in the world. We're to reflect the glory of God, the image of God in our very life. We're to help people to understand that, you know what, through one man, Adam, sin entered the world. Whether you like it, believe it, or don't believe it, the evidence is compelling. It's overwhelming. You're going to die because you're a sinner. Whether you think you are or not, that's the wages of sin. And it was imputed upon you. And if we can illustrate with very simple terms, like I just did, when you moved or whatever, that person went with you, even though they weren't there, they could think it was fair or not fair, but it doesn't matter, it doesn't change, because that's the way it is. When one person's disqualified, the whole team's disqualified. You know what? When Adam was disqualified, all of us were disqualified. It's very easy to understand. We may not like it. Why? Because human nature says, you know what? Well, I don't want to be held accountable for what somebody else has done. Well, it's just not that you're held accountable for what somebody else has done, but then don't forget, you've done it too. After the fact, you went and you chose to do that which was wrong before God. And the argument that we see in verse 14 is this. You know what? Every human being died from Adam to Moses, listen to me, even before God ever gave the Ten Commandments. Isn't that great? There's the argument. It's very simple. They weren't guilty before God because they violated the commandments of God because there wasn't any commandments of God. They were already guilty before God because God says you were guilty through Adam. That's why everybody dies. You say, well, how can children die? They didn't do anything wrong. Hey, you know what? Adam did, so they're dead. That's the way it is. And we need to understand that's God's truth. So what he's saying was, from Adam to Moses, people still died. Well, then how did they die if they didn't do anything wrong? And he says, well, they didn't violate any laws like Adam did. Think about this for a moment. Have you ever thought about why didn't Abel get the death penalty? When Abel killed Cain, I mean, Cain killed Abel, why didn't he get the death penalty? It didn't exist. He couldn't be held accountable by the law because the law hadn't been given yet. The law ultimately was given for Moses. And when Moses got the law, then all of a sudden the law is what God used to hold people accountable. He didn't get the death penalty because it didn't exist. In fact, God protected him as he went out into the world. But what he did was still wrong before God. In fact, God called it sin. Remember what he said? Hey, what's the matter with you? Sin is crouching at your door. And if you don't master it, it's going to master you. And you'll be held accountable for your actions. And he was. So we look at this and go, wow, then what's the rest of this passage about? Then it becomes very simple. Because the rest of this passage is contrasting Adam to Jesus. 
And that's what we're looking at. Let's go through it one at a time. Verse 15, back to Romans. The contrast is there. One man's trespass, the many, it should be the many died. One man's grace, the gift of grace and righteousness to the many. You follow that? Through, if you can see that. Wow. All right. Does that help a little bit? Kind of. Well, hey, you know what? It's in your Bible. <clears throat> anyway, one man's trespass. You got it? One man's trespass, many died. One man's grace, the gift of grace, righteousness to the many. Now, who is that extended to? It's extended to anybody and everybody. Whosoever will may come. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever will believe in him will not not perish but have everlasting life. It's an open invitation to anybody. Through one man, Adam, judgment and condemnation came into the world. See, what God wants us to do is identify with one or the other. We are either in Adam and we're dead or we're in Christ and we're alive. We're either one or the other. In Adam, we're dead. Judgment and condemnation. If you ever read John, John chapter 3, verse 16, go to verse 18. It's fascinating because the Bible says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. Why? Because it's already condemned. When was the world condemned? When Adam sinned before God. At that moment in time, every person born from that day forward was already guilty in Adam before God. The world's already condemned. But Jesus Christ, the many trespasses, brought forth a gift or justification. How is one justified before God? We've already learned in this study, when you believe the specific promises of God, one, that you're a sinner, that you're guilty before God, and two, as you respond with faith to the finished work of Christ, the Bible says the moment that you do that, a moment in time that you are declared just before God, once and for all of eternity. Through one man's trespass, death reigns. Through one man, Jesus Christ, believers reign in life. You notice that? Through one man, Adam, death reigned. Read Genesis 5, like I told you sometime, on your own and read it. Man, death reigned in the world. Death still reigns to this day. Death is still reigning to this day. The world lives in fear of death because death reigns. But for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that we reign with him in life. And even though we die physically, we will reign with him eternally. The Bible says, absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Man, when we leave this life, Paul says, you know what? I'm torn between two worlds. I want to be here for you, but I can't wait to leave because I'll be in the very sight of my Savior. I mean, how can we lose in this life? Through one man, Jesus Christ, believers reign. Through one act of trespass, condemnation for all men. Notice that. One act or transgression. The word is crossing the line. The moment that Adam crossed the line, death and sin entered the world for all time. The moment that Jesus Christ, in his act of obedience, read Philippians chapter 2, because Jesus was given a name above every other name. And the reason that God so honored him was why? Because he was obedient. Obedient as a bondservant to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus Christ obeyed the Father and went and died on the cross. He gave himself up for those of us who would believe. And that one act in history, that one moment in time on the cross, cancels out what Adam did at that one moment in time when he ate of the fruit and disobeyed God. One act in Adam, one act of obedience in Jesus. We're either in Adam and we're dead, or we're in Christ and we're alive. The disobedience of the one constituted sinners, the one act, the obedience of one, many are constituted righteous. And in sin reigned in death, and grace brings us eternal life. Man, it doesn't get any more exciting than this. And the reason that this contrast is laid out, because he wants us to identify with one or the other. 
I will ask you the same question I ask myself, and that is this. Am I still in Adam and dead? Spiritually dead, physically still alive, but going to die because of that act of transgression? Or have I come to the point where I realize what God says is true, and I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross? Because the moment I do that, the Bible says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. Do I really believe that? Do I really believe what the Bible says? If I'm in Adam, I'm dead, and so are you. But if we are in Christ, that's the most beautiful term that you ever read in Scripture. For those who are in Christ, we're new creatures. Old things pass away, all things become new. For those who are in Christ, the Bible says that Jesus will raise those who are in Christ when he returns. And those who are dead in Christ will be raised first. Those who are in Christ will be raised. Isn't that a wonderful truth? That absent from the body, those who are in Christ will be present with the Lord. Do we really understand this and do we really believe it? Do you really believe that all people are in Adam or in Christ? If you do, it should affect the way you live. Let me close with this story. It says, after a, after a few of the usual Sunday evening hymns, the, pre, the church's preacher once again slowly stood up, walked up to the pul- pulpit, and gave a brief introduction of his childhood friend. It says, with that, an elderly man stepped up to the pulpit to speak, and this is the story that he told. He says, a father, his son, and a friend of his son were sailing off the Pacific coast when a fast-approaching storm blocked any attempt to get back to the shore. The waves were so high that even though the father was an experienced sailor, he could not keep the boat upright and the three of them were swept into the ocean. Says the old man hesitated for a moment, making eye contact with two teenagers who were, for the first time since the service began, looking somewhat interested in the story. He continued, and he said, grabbing a rescue line, the father had to make the most excruciating decision of his life. To which boy, he says, to which boy he would throw the other end of the line. Says he only had seconds to make the decision, and the father knew that his son had come to recognize that he was a sinner and respond with faith to the finished work of Christ, believing in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. And therefore, he was a Christian. And the father knew all the promises that the word of God made as to where he would go the moment that he would die. He says, and he also knew that his, other, that his son's friend was not. He says, the agony of the decision could not be matched by the torrent of the waves. And the father yelled out, he says, I love you, son. And he threw the line to his son's friend. By the time he pulled the friend back to the capsized boat, his son had disappeared beyond the raging swells into the black of night, and his body was never recovered. By this time, the two teenagers who were sitting, straight, were sitting straighter in their pew waiting for the next words to come out of the old man's mouth. The father continued and said he knew his son would step into eternity with Jesus, but he couldn't bear the thought of his son's friend stepping into an eternity without him in a place of utter torment, a place of damnation and condemnation a place where you'll be separated from God for all of eternity, a place the Bible says a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of outer darkness. It says, therefore, he sacrificed his son. He went on and said, how great is the love of God that he should do the same for us when he sent Jesus to die for our sins. It says, with that, the old man turned and he sat back in his chair as silence filled the room. It says, within minutes after the service ended, the two teenagers were at the old man's side and said, that's a nice story, they started politely, because I don't think it's very realistic for a father to give up his son's life in hopes that the other boy would someday become a Christian. The old man said, well, you've got a point there. As he glanced down at his old worn Bible, he says, you know, he goes, once again, he looked at the boys and said, it sure isn't very realistic, is it? 
But I'm standing here today to tell you that that story gives me a glimpse of what it must have been like for God to give up his son for me. Because you see, I was that friend. I thought, wow, do we really believe what we say we believe? Do we really believe that every person is born lost and condemned before God? Or have we bought into the lie that people are basically good and somehow or another God's going to grade on the curve and you know what, and we're all going to get there somehow and every road leads to heaven and all the nonsense that we've been taught in our culture? Or do we really believe the declared word of God that reveals God's truth? The wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I would just encourage you, if you don't know what will happen to you, that you come to terms with that immediately. And trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Because you're born a sinner. And you've made it evident throughout your life, as each one of us has, that we're in need of a Savior. But praise God that he loves each of us so much that he sent Jesus to die on our behalf. For those who believe in him, he gives us the privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in his name. Now for those of us who have come to faith in Christ, and we say we believe that, isn't it about time we start seeing people around us as God sees them, as hopelessly lost without the intervention of Jesus Christ in their life? Lost and on their way to hell. Many of us, most of us, all of us, should be more like the father who understood where his son would go the moment that he left this life and understood that it meant making a decision at a moment in time to reach out to someone who, if had died at that moment, would have been eternally separated from God. We need to see people as God sees people. We need to believe the word of God. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for its truth, and I just pray that because of it, as we've come to faith in Christ, that our lives would never be the same, that we would never doubt your word, that we don't come up with terms and phrases, theistic evolution, and things to somehow or another make what we're, we're seeing in the world fit into your word. Your word stands on its own. Your word is trustworthy and reliable, and we can believe everything that's written in it, even though at times we don't fully comprehend or understand it. God, we just thank you and we praise you for the truth of the word of God that you say that it sanctifies in truth for your word is truth. Father, help us to see people around us as you see them, as lost and on their way to hell, condemned at a moment in time because of a sin that was, was made by, by Adam as he rebelled and crossed the line against you, that it was imputed upon every soul, that stamped upon every soul that comes into this world, that they're born and were born with a sin nature. God, help us to see it. The evidence is there. Even though a child will die before they, quote, do anything wrong, it's a fact that remains that they are a sinner because of the sin of one man, Adam. And through that sin, death entered into the world. God, help us to realize that truth and help us to reach out to others with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he gave his life on the cross for all who would believe. And we just praise you in his name. Amen.